Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 168, The Death of Unitarian Congregationalism. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to take on a pretty big subject, and I want to start off by saying that these are some rough draft thoughts on the matter, but I hope they'll be interesting and informative nonetheless. In the first segment of the podcast, I'm going to share a little bit more the words of Dr. Alvin Lamson, longtime pastor of a Unitarian Congregationalist church and a kind of spokesman for the movement. This is the person we heard from last week. I'm then going to comment on his statements and his views. Then I'll briefly describe the actual historical death of this type of Christianity, although not the death of the denomination. And finally, I'll assemble some factors that I think led to its demise, internal and external factors. First, a little bit more from Dr. Lamson. Last week, we heard his chapter in a book called History of All the Religious Denominations of the United States. That was the version from 1852. The first version was published in 1844. It turns out that in that same year, 1844, Dr. Lamson published a tract called What is Unitarianism? or A Statement of the Views of the Unitarian Congregationalists of the United States with some historical and statistical notices of the denomination. This is an earlier version of the material intended for more of an inside audience. It's probably this that he was asked to adapt and contribute to the book. I want us to hear a few passages because in this more insider publication, he's a little bit freer with his opinions. One way he's freer is in this passage. I am not about to discuss the question who are right, Unitarians or Trinitarians, but simply to state what Unitarian Christians believe and the grounds of that belief, so far only as is necessary to the right understanding of it. In other words, I would explain what Unitarianism is and on what sort of evidence its friends rely for proving its truth. Something of this kind, it is believed, is called for by the many misapprehensions which exist on the subject. The faith of Unitarians is often misunderstood and misrepresented. I may be permitted to say calumniated. It is often denounced in the pulpit and from the press and in private and social meetings. People are warned against it as a soul-destroying error. There is a portion of the community which has a strong prejudice against it without knowing precisely what it is or why they should be afraid of it. Only they are told that they must have nothing to do with it. They must not hear its preachers nor read the books of the denomination. Now to such could my voice reach them, I would say, in the language which was once used when the question was asked, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and see what Unitarianism is. Understand before you judge, then receive or reject it. If it appear to be the truth of God, if it appear to embrace the simple truths of the gospel, then do not hesitate to acknowledge it as such. Do not be frightened by a name. Do not allow yourselves to be influenced by what men say. Fear God rather than man. Reverence the truth wherever you find it. Come and see what Unitarianism is before you allow yourselves to cry out against it. Do not condemn it unheard. Do not allow yourselves to form your opinion of it from the imperfect and distorted representations of its enemies. This is what I would say, could my voice reach those who denounce it. In this earlier version, he more freely complains about people slandering the Unitarians. And this had been a problem for quite a long time. When he's writing this in the 1840s, they had adopted the name Unitarian for their group. For several decades before, they had never used that word. What basically happened was this. Originally, Christianity in New England was an established group of churches established by tax and by law. These came to be called the Standing Order. These were the descendants of the Puritans. The Puritans, when they arrived in Massachusetts, were actually part of the Church of England technically, but they were so separated they had to operate on their own. In any case, they were full-on Calvinists. And yet they were scriptural in orientation. 
So for basically the entire course of the 1700s, there was a drift away from Calvinism as people came to question their understanding of atonement, their views on the exact nature of original sin, total depravity, predestination. And as the 1700s went on, more and more people, more and more educated ministers began to question Calvinist, which are traditional Catholic views on the Trinity. A lot of them were influenced by people like Samuel Clark and Thomas Emlyn, very learned and able defenders of what I would call subordinationist Unitarian theology. At the time, they were called, quote, Arians. The way that a lot of these so-called Arians looked at it, though, they were just Bible-believing Christians. They didn't believe in the Trinity, but they believed in a kind of deity for Christ and that he had two natures. So as far as they were concerned, they were just as orthodox as anybody. But they were, in varying degrees, non-Calvinist. These people came to be called liberal Christians. Liberal meaning free, like free of state control, free of man-made creeds, free of some of those Calvinistic requirements. At that time, liberal didn't have the kind of leftist political connotation that it has now. And it also didn't have the connotation of a low view of the Bible or thinking that Jesus is just one teacher among many or a lot of other connotations. Basically, to say that you were a liberal Christian meant that you were a non-Calvinist Protestant. So again, because people are reading the English Unitarians and because people are reading the Bible and thinking about it, there's a steady growth of what I would call Unitarian theology in the 1700s in New England. At the same time, there's this old established order of Calvinists. What was happening in England is relevant. To make a very long story short, there was a kind of Unitarian Christianity in England, small in numbers, but notorious and actually very learned people and interesting people in different ways. Some of their famous leaders in the late 1700s and early 1800s were way too radical for American tastes. So you have the very learned scholar and minister Thomas Belsham. He had, in some respects, what we would consider a lower or more revisionary, quote, liberal view about scripture. He thought, for instance, that the birth narrative in Luke was just tacked on, that it was legendary, that it didn't really happen. And this was not a popular view among Protestants of the time, whether Unitarian or Trinitarian. Joseph Priestley is one of the most strange and interesting people of his age. In brief, Priestley was a biblical Unitarian, but he had a lot of strange views. He was kind of a polymath he was kind of a chemist before there was chemistry, and he's credited with the discovery of oxygen. In theology, Priestley was what you could call a determinist and a fatalist, somebody who thought that every last detail of things was set at the very first moment of time. And yet he thought this was compatible with human freedom. So he held to what philosophers call a compatibilist or soft determinist understanding of free will which is controversial. Priestley also was a materialist. Except for God, he thought that everything in the universe was material. He didn't believe in demons and angels. And he didn't believe in souls. And of course, most Christians now and then do believe in souls. Bottom line, the Thomas Belsham, Joseph Priestley type of English Unitarianism had given the word Unitarian a bad name. And so in the late 1700s, early 1800s, American Unitarians did not use the name Unitarian. They were often called liberal Christians. Sometimes they suggested they should be called rational Christians or small c Catholic Christians or just Christians. In any case, it was denounced and it and its leaders were often slandered as deists, as not Christians, as lying and hiding their real views, etc. Another revealing comment was edited out of the later book chapter. This is about a page where Lamson says the following. Unitarian Congregationalists believe firmly in a future retribution for sin and holiness. They think the language of the scriptures on this subject too plain to be misunderstood. This language, they believe, teaches as explicitly as language can that suffering for sin does not cease with the present life, that the sinner who leaves the world impenitent is subjected to the fearful judgments of conscience and of God in a future unexplored state of being. 
They think that the teachings of the Bible on this subject are in harmony with all that is at present known of the capacities and affections of the soul and the laws of its spiritual nature. However impossible they may find it to reconcile the doctrine of endless torment inflicted for the sins of this frail and finite life with their conceptions of God's infinite paternal compassion and love, compelled as they are to reject this doctrine as unworthy of God and unauthorized by scripture representations and metaphors, they believe that right views of the declarations of the Savior and of the nature of sin and holiness as habits of the soul afford no hope of future impunity to the impure and sinful spirit. They believe that the language of the Bible relating to the future condition of the wicked, of those who go out of life with souls stained by the pollution of sin and burdened with depraved affections, have a meaning, a significance, aye, a terrible significance. They believe that the consequences of present character and conduct will be felt through every stage of an endless existence. But on a subject necessarily so obscure, involving the meaning of the highly figurative expressions and bold oriental imagery found in the records of divine revelation, they are unwilling to dogmatize or to attempt to be more precise than the scriptures. While, therefore, they hold tenaciously the doctrine of a future momentous retribution for sin, they would leave each one to adopt those views of the circumstances and manner of this retribution which appear to him most accordant with truth or probability. In the revised chapter, he pairs this down to one sentence that, yes, Unitarians do believe that God will hold people accountable at some future point beyond death. What this longer statement shows is that Unitarians had become mushy on the doctrine of hell. And honestly, this to me, looking back in retrospect, looks like the door to universalism is just kind of standing open, or at least unlocked. Basically, his stance is they want to deny that God is going to torture the damned for an infinitely long time. At the same time, he seems to just assume that all Christians will agree that there's an endless existence. So, for reasons that are not clear to me, he's not even considering what's now called conditional immortality, what I would call annihilationism about hell, that hell eventually destroys its inhabitants. That God, having inflicted the punishment that they deserve, now has no more use for the inhabitants of hell. Basically, though, Lamson just gets mushy. He says they're not willing to dogmatize, they're not willing to go beyond scriptures, and they kind of leave it up to individual conscience. I don't know. I think Jesus put more emphasis on hell than these people did. To me, this looks like a departure from his teaching. When the podcast returns... Did these American Unitarians have their own corrupted Bible? Another brief comment a page or two later that he deleted in the other version goes like this. There is no greater slander than that which is frequently propagated from pulpits, in the streets, and from house to house, that Unitarians have another Bible, as it is expressed. This slander often originates in ignorance, but is sometimes countenanced, if not uttered, by those who know or should know better. May God forgive them this wrong. There's an interesting story behind this complaint, and he's right that it was a slander in America. About this another Bible, what had happened is some Unitarians in England published something that they unwisely called the improved version of the New Testament. This project was spearheaded by Thomas Belsham, who, as I said, was a very able and active scholar. First edition came out in 1808. And in the following year, 1809, there was an American edition published in Boston. But I don't have the impression that it was all that popular, however. What they did was they took a translation of the New Testament that had been done by a Trinitarian Anglican bishop, and they acknowledged that they started with his translation, and they went through it and they adjusted some of the translations in places where they thought that Trinitarian theology had unduly influenced it. 
They also, and this was really ahead of its time, put in a bunch of textual critical notes trying to decide different textual readings based on looking at the Greek manuscripts. And they also had some very interesting and often doctrinal footnotes. Basically, the improved version was an English Unitarian study Bible. The fact that they called it the improved version made people go insane. The fact that the Unitarians had their own edition of the Bible made them go nutty. And so this was wildly denounced in England. It went through, I believe, five editions there. I don't think it ever really caught on on this side of the Atlantic. But what caught on was the rumor that the Unitarians had their own horrifically corrupted version of the New Testament. In America, for the most part, Unitarian Christians were using the same Bible that other Americans were using, the venerable King James translation, or as my youth minister used to call it, the good news for 17th century man. So it was a slander to say they had their own Bible. Finally, in this earlier version, Lamson ends with a rousing, passionate expression of his own Unitarian Christian faith. Here's how he ends the earlier tract. I have spoken of what Unitarians believe, one word of the strength of my own convictions. For myself, I must say that, having studied the subject for more than a quarter of a century, I should just as soon think of denying that there is a sun in the heavens as of denying that the scriptures teach the supremacy of the Father and the distinct and derived nature of the Son. I do not hesitate to express confidently my entire and undoubting belief of the strict personal unity of God. So strong are my convictions on this subject that I should as soon doubt of the existence of God as of his proper personal unity. I do not feel more certain of my own existence than of the truth of this leading doctrine of Unitarianism. There is no fact of my own consciousness which I hold with a firmer grasp. But while I say this, I must add that our faith teaches us not to condemn as not entitled to the Christian name, and not in a condition to be saved, those who hold opinions different from our own. We do not so read our Bibles. A faith free from speculative error is not the highest good of the Christian. The great question with us is, or should be, what is our faith doing for the world, for the cause of humanity, of pure, undefiled, practical religion, and what effects is it working in our own hearts and lives? Does it produce in us a spirit of warm piety and earnest and enlarged benevolence? Unitarian Christians are accustomed, among the traits of the Christian character, to assign a high place to the spirit of all-embracing love. They profess to dislike denunciation and exclusiveness. They believe them foreign from the spirit of the gospel of Jesus. They do not learn of him to denounce their fellow Christians. They are not blind to the many excellencies of those who differ from them in their interpretation of the words of Christ. They do not think that all merit is walled up within a particular church or sect. This has been the great error of Christians. They have been too often narrow and sectarian. They have contended that there could be no salvation without the limited pale of their own sect. Unitarian Christians profess not so to have learned Christ. They believe that there is one universal church, comprehending the pure and humble of all sects, and holding in its embrace all who love the Lord Jesus in sincerity and walk according to his precepts, however they may differ in faith and opinion. It folds in its bosom Catholic and Protestant, Trinitarian and Unitarian. They cannot conceive how uniformity can be expected in religion when the works of God exhibit an endless variety. Does not nature proceed from God as well as religion? And does not nature exhibit infinite diversity and contrasts, yet overall breathes a spirit of beauty and love? And why not the same in religion, the human soul? Is it to be believed that God limits his favor and the help of his good spirit to those who belong to a particular church or worship by a particular creed or use a certain style of invocation or receive the rites of religion through a particular channel? Is not such a supposition derogatory to the character of the ever-loving Father? How strangely sound denunciation and the language of exclusiveness from lips accustomed to utter the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Where the soul is free, there must of necessity be diversity of opinion in religion. If you would have entire uniformity of opinion, you must fetter the soul's freedom. 
you must repress the loftiest exercise of its powers. You may make a solitude and call it peace, but do you thus honor God or religion? The portion of the church to which we belong, as I have said, has had its martyrs, who have gone cheerfully to the stake and done no discredit to their faith. They have borne patiently the spoiling of their goods, imprisonment, exile, and death. Their names, as were the names of the first Christians and of the Reformed under Luther, have been branded with opprobrium, and their books have been burned. Yet their deep convictions of truth have sustained and animated them, and they have died with a testimony of their love to the Savior on their lips, and we doubt not have received a heavenly crown. We are called to bear testimony in a different way, but in a way no less effectual. It is by a pure, humble, holy, and benevolent life. It is by living out the practical truths we receive, especially as taught in that grand summary of human duty, the Sermon on the Mount. How divine the Spirit which breathes in that discourse! Love, purity of heart, humility, obedience, the living out the truth that God is our Father and every human being our brother, these are what it teaches as necessary to save us. Thus to live is to build on a rock. Not one word of creeds, not one word of doctrines, forms, and rites as possessing in themselves power to save the soul, not one word of all these, but how much of justice, mercy, and love, of denying the selfish passions and the putting away of selfishness from the life. These we must do. The spirit which breathes in Jesus' discourses must breathe in our hearts and lives. The Father will then come to us and dwell with us, and our heaven will be here begun. Even so, come, Father Almighty, dwell in our hearts now, and fit us for a more full manifestation of thyself to our spirits in a higher world. There's something admirable about this. He's bold, he's sincere. In my view, his fundamental convictions are based on the Bible. And he's the opposite of a sectarian. He's not a controversialist. He doesn't want to get out there and damn everybody that has a different theology. He wants to accept as fellow disciples as many people as he can within the Christian world. However, is the great question, as he says, what is our faith doing for the world, for the cause of humanity? It seems to be putting a very commendable humanitarian concern down at the fundamental level. But I think at the fundamental level, any Christian movement should have the reconciliation of humans to their maker, discipleship to Jesus, proclaiming what he and Paul and John and Peter proclaimed, spreading the kingdom of God, not by just building hospitals, reforming the way that work is done, giving aid to the poor and so on, as good as all those things are, but by spreading the good news, facilitating the progress of that great message. It's not enough to rhapsodize about the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel is not, can't we all get along? Nor does the gospel forbid all kinds of exclusiveness. Christians have always kicked people out on the basis of behavior. Christians have always kicked people out on the basis of contradicting fundamental teachings. The question, of course, is, what are those? I won't go into it now, but the seed of my own answer is in podcast 85, entitled Heretic Four Approaches to Dropping H-Bombs. Actually, I think a lot of Unitarians knew, and a lot of them were agreed on what the fundamentals were. But in this podcast, I'm going to talk about how the movement came to an end, how the Christian movement came to an end, although the denomination soldiered on with a different purpose. When we come back, I'll offer a few more comments on the chapter we heard last time. Samson makes the point that in his day, and we're talking the 1840s and 50s here, Unitarians did not believe in directly addressing Jesus in prayer. And he cites the example of Origen, the famous early Christian teacher who died around 254, 255 AD. 
Origen, indeed, wrote a book called On Prayer and said that prayer should only be offered to the Father and that this is what Jesus taught us to do. What he fails to mention is that Origen later went back on this restriction. And so you see him in his later work called Against Celsus, arguing that, no, the Father and Son are both prayed to and worshipped. You have to remember that they're not in competition. It doesn't dishonor the Father to honor the Son. It's a way of honoring the Father. Arguably, in the New Testament, when you see people talking about calling on the name of the Lord, that refers to some kind of prayer to Jesus. It was some English Unitarians, namely Priestley and a guy named Theophilus Lindsay, who really pushed this point. They called worshiping Jesus or praying to Jesus Christian idolatry, which is a ridiculous name, honestly, because there's no idolatry in it. About worship, in this period you'll find various Unitarian Christians distinguishing supreme worship from some kind of lesser worship and saying that it's the supreme worship that can only be given to the Father and some lesser degree of honor or adoration or something should be given to the Son. I've objected to this before, and this is in my talk which you can find on YouTube called Who Should Christians Worship? My objection is that this is a meaningless or trivial distinction. If the highest sort of worship or supreme worship means worship while thinking that this is God himself, then yeah, okay, that should only be given to the Father because only the Father is God himself in the New Testament. Sure. And if lower worship is religious worship that doesn't involve thinking that, then okay, then I understand the distinction, but it's really kind of a trivial one. What is worship? The things we call worship. It could be talking about in a positive way, directly addressing, giving thanks and praise could be singing a hymn to. All the things that you actually do, which go by the name worship, are in the New Testament done to Father and Son. Just look in Revelation chapter 5. What about bowing down? Well, in some sense, every knee will bow to Jesus, according to Paul in Philippians 2, and yet it's to the glory of God the Father. So bowing, singing, speaking to, praising, any action that you'd call an action of worship is done both to the Father and to the Son, both to God and to His human Son in the New Testament. So if you try to characterize what's the supreme worship and how does it differ from low-down, regular old worship, I don't think anybody can really say anything other than supreme worship is where you're assuming the person is the one God, and lesser worship is where you're not. Okay, fine. I just don't think that's a very helpful distinction. I will say this, though. To the extent that they refused to worship Jesus, I think these American Unitarians made a huge mistake. It's not enough to just talk him up when you're having a discussion. They didn't worship him when they got together, and that's something that all Christians basically have always done. In failing to do that, they fail to carry out one of the missions of the church, which is to exalt the risen Lord Jesus. Indeed, that's part of discipleship to him. When the disciples encounter the risen Jesus at the end of the Gospel according to Matthew, it said they worshipped him. Or I think you could translate it that they bowed down to him. That's part of the mission of the church, in my view. And to the extent that these Congregationalist Unitarians refused to do this and thought that they were more pure and less idolatrous than their neighbors, I think they were mistaken. A few other theological comments. I don't think their theology was very much developed beyond reacting against Calvinism. So you see Lamson saying that God is strictly immutable. Really? Do they really want to say that? That God is immutable? And he seems to endorse divine impassibility. The idea that God cannot be changed in any way and cannot suffer in any way. Is that a good idea? On what grounds should a Christian hold that? It's no good to hold it just because it'll help you stick it to the Trinitarians. How about divine timelessness? I don't think he addresses that here. These things have since been rethought by a lot of theologians. About atonement, they reject what's now standardly called a penal substitutionary view. Yeah, so do a lot of people. On the other hand, there are Calvinists and other evangelicals who think, well, that's the real doctrine. Anything else is watered down. But a lot of people reject it, partly because it's not supported by Scripture, but part of because of this justice objection that he gives. It's not required by justice that you kill a non-sinner for the sake of forgiving the sinner.
that's not what justice requires. That looks like it's the opposite of what justice requires. So it can't be that God's own justice demanded that he kill Jesus in order to forgive. But they don't really have a worked out view of atonement. And I think really a lot of them didn't pay enough attention to interpreting the scriptures on that. Well, there is a very interesting book by one of these Boston area Congregationalist Unitarians, a guy named Noah Worcester, spelled Worcester. He has a book called The Atoning Sacrifice, A Display of Love, Not of Wrath. And here he at least takes some steps towards coming up with a different account of atonement, where it's not that God has to vent his anger or that he has to kill an innocent in order to be able to justly forgive, but rather the whole thing is a divine expression of love, like you do see said in the New Testament a couple of times. But back to Lamson, he says they reject the doctrine of native total depravity. So do a lot of Christians. Not to mention the idea of original sin, that babies are already born guilty and deserving to go to hell forever. That's about all I have then to say directly in response to Lamson. So when the podcast returns, I'm going to list what I think are some factors that led to the demise of this Christian movement. Before I talk about the factors that led to the death of Unitarian Congregationalism, let me just comment on that death. Some people will find this talk obnoxious, in particular present-day Unitarian Universalists who trace their movement back all the way through these times. But everybody agrees that Unitarian Universalists are not Christians. They'd be the first people to agree. At the same time, everybody should agree that Alvin Lampson was a Christian. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. He believed in the one God. He believed that Jesus died, in some sense, as a sacrifice for the sins of the human race. He believed in salvation through faith, by grace, not earned, but given as part of this new covenant for those who would believe in the Son of God. He believed in the resurrection, the future return, divine punishment. Alvin Lampson was a Christian. Now, if you think he was off base, fine. So how did you get from Alvin Lampson and lots and lots of people like him to this different religion? Basically what happened was I think there were some problems in the group all along. So in the 1790s, first couple decades of the 1800s. And these problems were revealed in about 1836 and then accelerating in the rest of the 1830s and continuing through the 40s and 50s. What happened was what historians call the Transcendentalist Movement came about. And this basically was a non-Christian religious movement and philosophy that managed to pass itself off as a kind of progressive, forward-thinking type of Christianity. And it really deeply infected the body of Unitarian Congregationalists. Not all of them, and some of them fought back the best source I know about this is a book called Our Unitarian Heritage, written by a professor named Earl Morse Wilbur, published in 1925. This is a guy who's in the Unitarian denomination at a time where I think it basically wasn't Christian anymore and hadn't been for some decades, uh, but before it had morphed into Unitarian Universalism, before they had hooked up with the Universalists. The way he looks at it, the less Christian the movement gets, the better. He takes the opposite view from my own. Here's how he describes this transcendentalist movement, which I think was a foreign infection in American Unitarian Christianity. He says that transcendentalism spread rapidly among the younger ministers. Its leaders declared that we are not dependent upon miracles, nor upon Jesus, nor upon the Bible for our knowledge of religious truths, for man is a religious being by nature. Religious truths do not have to be proved by miracles or by reasoning. They do not come to us from the outside. 
They arise spontaneously within us, and God reveals them to our own souls directly. Hence, we do not have to go to past ages and ancient prophets for our religion, or try to reason it out for ourselves, or to follow the usual religious traditions. We need only to keep our souls open to what God would teach us now in our religious intuitions. That, I think, is an accurate enough expression of the outlook of people like the famous Ralph Waldo Emerson or Theodore Parker. They tended to, I think, uncritically adopt some of the new theories of biblical criticism that were just coming out of Germany at the time. They tended to assume that obviously miracles don't happen, obviously you can't believe these reports, even in the case of Jesus and the Apostles. And they wanted to kind of spiritualize or ethicalize the whole endeavor. They tended to think it was narrow-minded to stick to traditional Christian doctrines or even traditional practices like baptism. They wanted to make it all about ethics and good feelings and sort of experiencing the divine in nature, although they didn't believe in a personal God, which is to say they didn't believe in God. So this wasn't what most Unitarian Christians in this movement thought at the time. It was a minority, a pretty small minority at first. It was aggressively denounced by some people, like the famous Andrews Norton, a leading scholar and apologist. But the general tendency was for people to just sit on their hands and not rock the boat. Why was that? Well, there were some things about the spirit of the times that you have to understand. This movement, I think, was hamstrung by what I would call an unbalanced anti-creedalism. They rejected any kind of use of mere human creeds, no matter what their content To me, this is clearly an overreaction. Getting rid of the Athanasian Creed is one thing. In fact, most Protestants have gotten rid of it or really ignore it most of the time, even if it's officially on the books. You could make a strong case that the Nicene Creed should be gotten rid of. It's never been clear what it expresses, how you could ground those claims in Scripture. It seems like it's caused more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, but how about a creed that said... We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in his unique Son, the man Jesus, the Messiah, who was sent by God, who preached his message of the kingdom to the world, who voluntarily died as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity, and was raised from the dead on the third day, exalted to God's right hand and put in charge of the church, and someday he'll come back and be in charge of the world. What about a creed that said something like that? Or say the Apostles' Creed with a few confusing statements taken out about did Jesus go to Hades or hell for three days, etc. How could you be against that and be a Christian? Well, they just had a knee-jerk overreaction against creeds and against government control and also against theology. They thought that polite people don't talk about theology or get into theological arguments They poo-pooed this sort of thing as metaphysical subtleties. There was a kind of anti-intellectualism that's always been a part of the American character that I think really came back to bite them hard. It came back to bite them because a lot of them couldn't distinguish garbage philosophy like Emerson was spreading from well-grounded, careful philosophy. And being creedless, what happened was When their ministers ceased to believe in God, they couldn't decide what to do. They had arguments about this. And so, just paraphrasing a very interesting history, which is in the book I mentioned a minute ago, there were struggles within the denomination in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And they tended to go like this. The conservatives said, hey, we've become too free. I mean, don't you have to be a Christian to be a part of this group? Shouldn't we affirm discipleship to Jesus and say that you have to believe in God? We don't want to just have anybody in the group, right? And then there were the more liberal or the more revisionist people. They were at the time called radicals. Radicals didn't believe in any exclusion. Exclusion's bad. After a series of struggles, one group, and this was the Western branch, a kind of Western parallel Unitarian Congregationalist denomination, in the year 1894, resolved this series of disputes by adopting the following statement, which apparently placated even the conservatives at that time. Here it is. These churches accept the religion of Jesus, holding in accordance with his teaching that practical religion is summed up in love to God and love to man, 
And we cordially invite to our working fellowship any who, while differing from us in belief, are in general sympathy with our spirit and our practical aims. That's an interesting statement, and I think that embodies, in one sentence, the way that social and political aims had taken over and really hijacked the movement. Let me talk about those. But first, our present day. Here's a desperate problem for American evangelicalism right now. In America, evangelical Christianity has grafted itself onto the Republican Party and onto generally the conservative movement in politics. Now, if you live in a heavily Democrat area like I do, that just means that people don't consider evangelical Christianity as a religious option at all. They hate the Republicans. And if the Christians are Republicans, they hate the Christians too. Myself, I think you should be as involved in politics as you want to be. I do think we have civic duties to be involved, to try to do good. But I don't think that the church as such is supposed to be engaging in political work. Its charter is something else. It's the charter that Jesus gives in the Great Commission. What these 19th century Americans convinced themselves of was that the kingdom of God is just that people's lives should be improved. You know, reduce infant mortality, care for the war-wounded, help people who are addicted to alcohol or opium. These are all great causes. And in this time, so-called liberal Christianity, ceasing to be Christian, they did a lot of good in a lot of these areas, and they were very proud of it. They gave a lot to educational institutions as well. But insofar as they're claiming to represent Jesus Christ, they'll have to answer to him for this question, did you do what I said to do? Did you teach what I said to teach? Did you teach what my apostles taught? And they'll have to say, a lot of them, uh, no, we, we had come up with something better. Well, we thought it was better. Now, politics had come into it much earlier, before you see these non-Christian statements being officially adopted in the 1880s and 90s. Way back in the 1700s, you had a political split. All the people, basically, who were for independence, who were on the revolutionary side, were liberal Christians, all of whom were, to some degree, not fully Calvinist, and some of whom were Unitarian in their theology. At the time, they were called Jeffersonians and Federalists, whereas the Standing Order people, the descendants of the Puritans, those Calvinist ministers, were soon to be on the side of the Brits. So the pro-freedom, pro-America people, the forward-looking pioneers, politically, they were on that one side, and this denomination was kind of tied to that. And the revolution worked out pretty well. And you see over and over this kind of smug belief in the inevitability of historical progress, this idea that they're just on the right side of history, and pretty soon everybody in America will be a Unitarian Christian. Nope. That was foolish and overconfident. And through all of these decades, from the 1790s up until it ceased being a Christian movement, you have people constantly complaining that there's little missionary effort that these people give little to Christian causes. They give to various charitable causes, but they don't give to the denomination. They don't support preachers and missionaries spreading the good news. In contrast, the Trinitarian churches did that, and eventually they swamped them. Now, it's hard for us to believe now, but there was a time in the Boston area uh, when the, the whole area was very Christian, and the Trinitarians felt rather put upon, like that they had been almost excluded from the halls of power and influence, that so many of the upper class were Unitarian that they felt a bit oppressed. And there was some truth to this, not that these people oppressed anybody. As far as I can tell, they were always tolerant in their outlook and against controversies and wrangling and division. The Unitarian Congregationalists tried to retain fellowship with the other Congregationalists as long as they could. That later became impossible because of a certain couple of controversies that I won't go into. But the truth behind the complaint of oppression, or just a complaint of Trinitarians being a minority, is that Unitarian Congregationalism was very much a kind of upper-class view. And I think if you have a type of Christianity that appeals disproportionately to the upper class and not to the lower classes very much or at all, I think it's probably a doomed movement. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts of the Lord. This brings me back to the theme of anti-Calvinism. What had happened was in the first great awakening, you had some very, they would say, enthusiastic, some of us now would say fanatical or emotionalist, you had some very extreme expressions. You had the Englishman George Whitfield denouncing all the rest of the clergy who weren't Calvinist. You had some types of Christian practice and expression and thinking that horrified the well-bred gentlemen. Were they right to be horrified? I don't know. I have no position about that. I'm sure it was a big mix of different things. I think the Great Awakening must have been a big mix of divine influence and also of human craziness. That's what I've seen in more recent similar revivalist movements. But my point is just, you can't have a successful Christian movement where only a certain kind of respectable and upper-class person feels comfortable and gets something out of it. And it's clear enough when you read some of their writings that they did think of themselves as a higher class of people and a higher class of Christian than some of these lowbrow, mouth-breathing, emotional types. Now, maybe a lot of these Unitarian Congregationalist religious life was not that emotional. Maybe it didn't need to be. I don't know. But what about the person who's been to prison? What about the person who's committed adultery or murder? What about the person who's become horribly addicted to something and ruined their family? What about somebody that needs to repent with tears and snot and a big scene? Do you have a place for that in your Christian movement? It's not clear to me how much really they preach divine judgment and wrath at all. In any case, my point is that dismissing these types of feelings and experiences and this type of concern, I think, was a big mistake. And I do see a dismissive kind of attitude when I read some of their writings. Some of them so far reacted against the old Calvinist love of controversy and denunciation and name-calling. They so overreacted against that that they ended up celebrating theological diversity rather than just tolerating it. As if difference of opinion was in itself a valuable thing. Now to say it's inevitable, I think that's right. People are going to form different judgments about certain issues. To say that it should be tolerated, I think, is true and important, and I think these Unitarians were on the side of the angels there. Nowadays, traditional and evangelical Christians agree with them more than they agree with the old, battling Calvinists. Most evangelicals I know will tolerate somebody who's not a five-point Calvinist. Most who I know will tolerate Arminians, and most, but not all, will tolerate open theists. Most, but not all, will tolerate people who really just don't have a belief about the Trinity and really have no idea what to make of that. Yeah, so they're more like the liberal Christians of old than they are like a real hardcore Calvinist. Of course, we have those among us as well, and they're generally tolerated. But to make a fetish out of theological disagreement is to deny the importance of truth. It's to say that it doesn't matter which side is correct and which side is incorrect. Well, of course it matters. It always matters somehow. Granted, some of these disputes matter a lot more than others. But you know they've overreacted by the time they get to celebrating differences on theological points. So these are a lot of theological complaints I've lodged. I see some out-of-whack emphases, some misplaced priorities in this movement. And at the time, none of these things would have been that extraordinary. They were just accepted as part of the furniture. It's only after the demise of the movement that anybody really thinks to try to do a post-mortem. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'm going to bring in a little bit of sociology.
Canadian sociologist of religion Rodney Stark published an article in 1996 called Why Religious Movements Succeed or Fail, a Revised General Model. And this is building on an article that he published back in 1987. And I'm just going to read from his conclusion. He cites 10 factors, he calls them 10 propositions, that lead to the success of a religious movement. So I'm going to just quickly read through them, and then I'm going to come back and comment on how a few of them, I think, are relevant to the case at hand. He says, Other things being equal, religious movements will succeed to the degree that, one, they retain cultural continuity with the conventional faiths of the societies within which they seek converts, two, their doctrines are non-empirical, three, they maintain a medium level of tension with their surrounding environments, are strict but not too strict, Four, they have legitimate leaders with adequate authority to be effective. Four, A, adequate authority requires clear doctrinal justifications for an effective and legitimate leadership. Four, B, authority is regarded as more legitimate and gains in effectiveness to the degree that members perceive themselves as participants in the system of authority. Five, they can generate a highly motivated volunteer religious labor force, including many willing to proselytize. Six, they maintain a level of fertility sufficient to at least offset member mortality. Seven, they compete against weak local conventional religious organizations with a relatively unregulated religious economy. Eight, they sustain strong internal attachments while remaining an open social network able to maintain informed ties to outsiders. Nine, they continue to maintain sufficient tension with their environment, remaining sufficiently strict. And 10, they socialize the young sufficiently well as to minimize both defection and the appeal of reduced strictness. Now those are mouthful, and I don't have time to explain them all, but let me just briefly go through them and say how I think they apply to Unitarian Congregationalism as found, especially in the first half of the 19th century. One is, they retain cultural continuity with the conventional faiths of the societies within which they seek converts. This the Unitarians had. They were still basically the descendants of the Puritans in a lot of ways. Although, as I explained, they were part of this movement going away from Calvinism through the whole course of the 1700s. So the first factor they had in spades. Second, their doctrines are non-empirical. Stark is talking about cases where a group will make predictions that don't come true. By non-empirical, he has in mind not refutable. Yeah, in that sense, the doctrines of the Unitarians say their non-Trinitarian theology are not empirical and so can't be refuted when things don't practically work out. So they have no problem there. A medium level of tension with their surrounding environment, strict but not too strict. I think they failed on this one. I think they had a very low level of tension with their surrounding environment. I think they fit in very well with the kind of merchant, successful class in the Boston area, kind of upper middle class to upper class. Four, I think they also had big problems with legitimate leaders with adequate authority to be effective. Earlier on, they had people who were ministers given to that whole profession, basing their teachings on the Bible. Later on, they had people like Theodore Parker, more or less making it up as they went along. People like Ralph Waldo Emerson basically preaching a different religion, wanting in some sense to be within the movement. They did have their members as participants in the system. This is part of their congregationalist heritage. So they had church people and members of the parish voting on ministers. And yet, at some point, it's, why should I accept this guy as a legitimate Christian leader? Five, they can generate a highly motivated volunteer religious labor force, including many willing to proselytize. Well, they did seem to a large degree to fail on this. And they themselves complain about it over and over in many sources. They thought in particular they had a big opportunity in the West, as America was rapidly settling the West. There were a lot of places where Calvinism just really didn't have a hold and where irreligion and unbelief had become the order of the day. And they would go and visit these places and say, wow, they're really wanting to hear this liberal Christianity, that is this non-Calvinist Protestantism. We've got to send people here. We can plant a million churches here. It didn't really happen. 
they did spread to some of the bigger cities and it was then the West, places like Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Cleveland. But they didn't go to every little town way out West in Frontierland. They simply didn't have enough people to do it. They didn't have enough ministers to meet the needs of their congregations in New England in many cases. For whatever reason, these churches were willing to donate to charity, but not willing to spread their brand of Christianity. And they did it, but not very well, and were outpaced by others. High enough level of fertility sufficient to offset member mortality? Yeah, I think they had that. They compete against weak local conventional religious organizations within a relatively unregulated religious economy. They arguably had this in the late 1700s and the early part of the 1800s, and they pretty clearly did not have this later in the 1800s. Calvinists and the various other Trinitarian evangelicals rallied to their cause, and there was a second Great Awakening, and they were not weak after a certain point. Strong internal attachments with an open social network. The movement did have some cohesion, particularly after the Civil War, but I think the seeds of their demise were already growing at that point. Did they remain sufficiently strict? No, I don't think so, as evidenced by their inability to maintain any kind of Christian requirements. Any kind of agreement to basic Christian teaching ceased to be necessary to be a member of the church and of the denomination. And so, okay, well then it's a good works club, or it's a social political movement, you know, like the Tea Party or the anti-slavery movement. Did they socialize the young sufficiently well to minimize defection and the appeal of reduced strictness? I suspect not, but I don't really know how they brought up young people. I suspect a lot of them drifted away into just unbelief. There's a joke that Unitarian Universalists will tell you, which is, what do you get when you cross a Unitarian Universalist with a Jehovah's Witness? And the answer is, someone who knocks on your door for no apparent reason. A low commitment, low requirement, very general cultural kind of commitment that I think a lot of people that were called Unitarians had in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century. This kind of thing is just easily outgrown and easily discarded. Your parents might be a hippie, but you might really have nothing in common with hippies at all. Your parents might be a Republican, and you might have really nothing in common with Republicans at all. It's not hard to switch that type of commitment. It's not much harder than going from PC to Mac or Mac back to PC. So those are my thoughts for this week. Like I said, they're rough draft thoughts. If you're in some kind of Unitarian Christian movement now, you have to wonder, is your movement just 50 years away from death or from transmogrifying into something unrecognizable as Christian? If you're an evangelical American, you have to wonder about the fury that's now directed towards your movement. And has that movement taken in the seeds of its destruction, like this at one time very confident, seemingly healthy movement did? Gloating and saying that these people were never Christians is just incorrect. Here's something that both current-day Trinitarians and Unitarians can agree on. Early Christianity did well. They did well with what looked like almost no resources, and going against the grain of the societies they were in and of the governments they were under. They didn't do well because they won some elections, they got the right people in charge. They didn't do well because they quickly won the culture wars of their era. While they were losing the culture wars, while they had no chance of winning the culture wars, they were spreading and spreading and spreading. It's an interesting question why. Someone like Rodney Stark will cite certain factors about their functioning as a society. Of course, a lot of Christians will say, I think rightly, that they were preaching and practicing the whole message. If we do that, we have to assume that we'll thrive. If only thinking that we were doing it entailed that we actually were. This week's thinking music has been Golden by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to and download the entire track. There are also a whole bunch of other links there. You can find out more about Joseph Priestley, the improved version of the New Testament, 
the relevant works of origin, some other podcast episodes, the book by Wilbur, the article by Stark, and the scriptures discussed in this episode. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>